from MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy, where the doctor's always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hey, thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to talk about all kinds of things that are important to you, our listeners. That's right. You can call in live today if you have any questions about your health or the health of someone else. We'll try to answer those questions for you so that you have a free doctor consultation right here on the air. You can share those comments and questions with us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody's having a wonderful morning today. Lots of uh, showers in the northern part of our state and uh, throughout the southeast, sort of off and on. You know, it's that latter part of winter in the south when it's 70 degrees one minute and 40 degrees or lower the next and not quite as cold as we got in the Midwest I know my mom was traveling up there to Chicago right as that weather was up there. Man, that was some nasty stuff. If we had that in Mississippi, the whole state would freeze and break into, you know. I can't even fathom minus 40-degree weather uh, or minus 24 high. I mean, that's incredible. But thankfully, we're a little bit warmer here in the south, although uh, these fluctuations can cause a lot of problems with health and uh, also with, uh, you know, accidents, all kinds of things that happen on the roads about this time of year. So just be careful out there and uh, wash your hands. Stay away from sick people. My pediatrician used to tell my mom that all the time, you know, stay away from sick people. It sounds simple, uh, but there's a lot of truth into that. We're going to be taking your calls this morning on Southern Remedy. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Sometimes you can't get to the phone. That's okay. We've got an email that you can always send in your email uh, questions to us. And that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. All right. We're going to go to our first caller this morning, which is Kay in Memphis. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. I cannot believe that this time I was the first one. You were the very first one. You beat everybody. We ought to have a contest about who can call in first. How about that? (laughs) Well, I want to first tell you. Someone saw you buying a pair of running shoes, so I know you're off and running. Uh-oh, I've got some spies out there. <laughs> <laughs> you may re- you may remember I'm a retired medical social worker. That's right. So I, I, you've got I your, joke. you've got like, you're in Memphis, though. I wasn't in Memphis buying running shoes. Well, okay, I'm sorry. Somebody, <laughs> somebody lied to me. But I, I want you to know, outside of the examining room, I'm just one of you. Inside of, uh, inside of the examining room, right. I'm all ears for what you're going to tell me. Okay. Now, what, I, what I want to ask you about, I have, I don't have a blood pressure problem anymore much, and I want to know about it. I have an order 
suspicion of amlodipine from oh last year, and I have figured it out. I take one point eight per week. I take my blood pressure every morning and every evening. And so, do I have high blood pressure or not? I exercise, and I'm I'm vicious about my diet. I'm an old country girl. I <laughs> eat what we ate them. So what? I'm not going to ask my cardiologist. Yes. Yeah. Until I ask you. Well, it's do that, I have a problem? That's a great question. So, uh, so you know, for somebody like yourself who has had high blood pressure maybe for years or even decades. And it was well controlled on medication. As you get older, you may have had to cut back on the medication. Uh, and as you mentioned, you're taking amlodipine, which is a calcium channel blocker, very common blood pressure medication. It's not unusual as you get older to require less of that medication, or even if you're younger sometimes. There's different things that affect blood pressure. You mentioned probably the biggest non-medication way that we can control blood pressure, and that's diet. So what we eat, it's like the old saying. I don't think too many people are saying this because I say this to younger people, and they, they act like this is the first time they've heard it, but you are what you eat. Uh, our diet does change us inside, and over time you can modulate or treat high blood pressure with certain foods that you eat. Um, in fact, there is one, probably one of the most studied diets is the DASH diet, and that's not Mrs. DASH. That stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. And it was designed and studied after, uh, it's actually a, a Mediterranean diet or modeled after the Cretan diet, which is really high in, in raw fruits and vegetables or minimally processed fruits and vegetables. And then the meat uh, is also lower than what a typical American diet is. And if you eat meat, um, I borrowed this from a, a physician in the Delta one time. I heard him say this, to eat, eat something that swims or flies. So fish and chicken or turkey, uh, those are the two you know, things that most of the meat uh, is derived from in this diet. And then the fats come from non-animal fat sources. So that would be plant sources like nuts, olive oil, uh, those kinds of things. So uh, it is an incredibly healthy diet, not just for hypertension. It also has been noted to have lower uh, rates of cardiovascular disease like heart attack and stroke. Uh, but it is very effective. And in the DASH trial, and there's been some criticisms of this, but Basically, if you, you know, particularly if you're not eating it and then you go to eating it, you can lower blood pressure as much as 15 points. Um, so it is very effective. So, Kay, it may have been that you, uh, you know, by what you were eating and just as a fact of getting older are requiring less of that medication. Back to your initial question, do you really have high blood pressure? Yeah, you do. But it's being well, treated. Yeah, but- it's being treated, though, with not only with the medication, but with the diet. So. Oh, well, 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 okay. Can I talk to you? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. I'm an old farm girl. Yeah. And I still, I still believe in the pyramid. And yeah. I eat my three fruits, vegetables, all those things, all the way down to the, all the way down to the bottom. And I do not smoke. I don't. I mean, I gave that up back when they went from thirty-five to thirty-seven cents a pack <laughs> when <laughs> gas was thirty-five cents a gallon. Right. So I go way back. To, I'm eighty-eight years old. I eat very healthy. And I don't, I, I just don't need, uh, my blood pressure is fine now. I still stay on my, I don't call it a diet. That's the way I grew up. I lived yeah. on a farm. Yeah. We grew everything that we ate and very little of it was meat except for chicken. Yep. Yep. That's the way to go. 
I, no, I would, no, 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 no. My question, my question is, I guess is, do I? I guess I do have high blood pressure. I take it every day, twice a day, and maybe twice in a week will it show up anything. Yeah. So I monitor, I monitor it, and I have I have my amlodipine here. I have most of it from a year ago, and I don't have to take it. Unless I know what my blood pressure is. Yeah, I, Kay, Kay, I have I have patients that are just like you, and I, what I tell them, they ask me the same question. I say, you know, it's a good question. Do you really have it? If you, it's same thing with diabetes. Some people say, well, I don't have it anymore. You probably do have it. There's other ways to test and see what the changes are. I mean, it really doesn't matter because you're going to treat it the same way with the medication a little bit here and there, but also with what you eat. So um, I, I, you're on the right track. Kay, you're, you're a model patient for everybody else out there. Kay is an example of what to do the correct way. Uh, and uh, as far as, you know, I tell people, look, you know, apples and oranges of, of whether you want to call it hypertension or just it's normal blood pressure now, but basically it's being treated. So... Hey, Kay, thanks for that call. Uh, we're going to go to our second caller now, who is Lori in Greenwood. Good morning. Good morning, Lori. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Hey, I have a quick question for you. Um, I'm 51 years old, and uh, for the past couple of years, I've had an issue with my thumbnails uh, peeling from my bed. Mm-hmm. Of, 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 and also... It just recently started with my toenail. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the uh, on my fingers, well, on my thumb, the nail does grow back, but it's so weak it breaks off. But I can see the outline, and it never fully attaches. Yeah, is that multiple fingers and toes? Uh, so far, it, it, for the last couple of years, it's just been my thumbs. Okay, and then just recently, it started uh, on my. Big toenail. Okay. A big toe. Is there any discoloration in the nail, or is it just sort of flaking off and, and weak right there? Well, it gets caught, like, on on my bedding, my sheet. Uh-huh. So it looks like it's white. You okay. know, like when you clean your fingernails, sure. that's what it looks like. Okay. It, it's not that I, I've been treated before for nail fungus, but it didn't, it didn't do anything. How were you treated for that? Was that something that you... Uh, Put on there oral or medication. oral medication. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, this sounds an awful lot like uh, a nicomycosis is the is the fancy Latin term for this, but it's toenail fungus or fingernail fungus, nail fungus, basically. So uh, very common. Uh, places like the South, just because we have higher humidity throughout the year, are is where fungi grow. You can't ever get rid of them totally. They're they're here to stay, and sometimes they set up shop in. Uh, your hair or in your uh, nails. They can also be in the skin. It's a little bit easier to treat if it's just on the skin and not actually in the hair or nails. Um, They most frequently cause uh, what we call dysmorphic nails, which is just it changes shape. So they're not that nice shape that a nail has. And it it tends to grow out. You know, fingernails and toenails, they usually grow about a millimeter a day at the most. Uh, maybe a little bit faster than that, depending on, you know, your metabolism and everything. So they start at the nail bed. That's the part that's that's not at the tip of the finger. It's at the base of the finger. And that usually has that, that sort of curved, semi-lunar white spot. But that can be, uh, if you have a fungus, that's where it's setting up shop. 
and it'll cause yep, the rest right of, front of that. Yep, that's it. So, uh, and it can be white. Sometimes it can be dark colored. It just depends. And a lot of it depends on what type of fungus. You, and if it's in the nails or the hair, you can't use a topical agent. There's a lot of good topical agents out there for the skin that you just put on and they go away with time. But you really have to take something orally like you did. If uh, any, But the thing is, though, it'll come back. So you can treat it. Usually the treatment period is anywhere from six weeks to three months. And then you have to, you know, you have to wait uh, for that nail to grow out. And the medication sort of gets concentrated in those areas so that it, it prevents the fungus from growing. But then after, you know, it may be six months or a year later, it can come back just because that's something that we, we really can't avoid too well. It's something that's in everything that we're around. Um so you may have to be retreated, or they can take a nail scraping. I don't know if they did this the first time, but you can actually pinpoint exactly which fungus it is. So the people who do this, uh, allergy, immunology does this sometimes. Uh, dermatologists do this. So they take like a, a nail scraping, and then they'll culture that out. It does take a couple of weeks to, to see that in most cases, to see exactly what type of fungus and then they may want to, you know, put you on something either the same or different than what you were on. But that sounds like what it is. There are other nail changes that can happen with time. Uh, any kind of illness can cause things like Mies lines, M-E-E-S. So those are some indentations in the nail or some, some lines, some uh, horizontal lines in the nail bed. Uh, it just means you had some kind of insult to your system. Maybe it was a, an illness. Maybe it was chemotherapy. Maybe it was something else. But that... It's pretty common. I, I, I do have chronic regional pain syndrome. That probably won't affect the nails as much. It's not as common. Okay. Now, if autoimmune diseases do, and oftentimes you can, they can help diagnose things. Nail pitting is something that we see, particularly in things like psoriasis. But, um, yeah, the nails are, are one of the best. You know, it's sort of a lost art. A lot of people don't look at nails very well but uh, just because they're not trained in it. But they can tell you a lot about what's going on in your system. So I, if you've been treated before, I think now that I think about it more, I, I think we pro- I probably would go to somebody that can actually do a culture just to make sure that's what's going on. Uh, and, uh, you know, you may have to wait. The good thing is if it's a fungus, it's more of just a cosmetic thing uh, unless you have other uh, problems like diabetes because it will allow bacteria to come into your system. So, you know, you can right, keep them yeah, clean like- and... And, and, you know, Dr. DeShazo used to say this all the time. He said, you know, wipe your toes clean, uh, dry your toes off after the shower. Don't, he hated wet feet. So uh, right. I, would, I would echo that. That's probably one way to, to, uh, to treat it that way or at least try to prevent that. But it's everywhere. So that's what I would do, Lori. Okay, so as it grows out, it just splits because it's not yep. attached. So and you can't really, normal? yeah, you just can cut them so that they don't get snagged on anything. And if it, you know, it, it, as you treat it, it'll get back to its normal shape most of the time. Every once in a while it won't, but there's not much you can do for that. Okay. You know, um, so putting like a ceramic nail over the thumb just to, cosmetically, that would not be a good thing. Oh, that's fine. Now, if you wanted to do that, it's not going to, it's not going to sort of, it's not going to make it worse. It's going to make it look better. So that, yeah, that's okay. totally fine. Okay, great. All right. Thank you very much. All for your right. Time, sir. Sure. Thanks All for right. your call, Lori. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we got plenty of time for your questions. That's right. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. 
This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about all kinds of stuff from toenail fungus to hypertension. That's right. We can handle it all. So it doesn't matter what age you are. Just give us a question, and we'll try to tackle that today. Lots of uh, common stuff. You may say, you know, this really isn't bothering me too much, except that I'm just thinking about it every day. I guess that is bothering you. Call us about it. I mean, maybe it's not something that you've been able to address with your physician, and maybe we can help answer those questions. The number to reach us is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, Or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Obesity, something that uh, in the South we certainly deal with. Mississippi, unfortunately, is uh, frequently tied or number one in the rankings as the most obese state. Uh, Not something that is totally isolated here in the South, though. Now, most of America deals with this in epidemic proportions, uh, hard to treat. You know, I tell my patients, particularly those who are struggling with obesity, look, uh, I know it's not easy. Uh, you know, if you just look at the statistics, it's harder to lose weight than it is to quit smoking now. So that's a, a good way to think about it. It is doable. You can do that. Even modest amounts of weight loss or small amounts of weight loss can have some effects on your health. So it is something that you want to do. But a little bit of um, um, as a study, actually, that came out that was from 1995 to 2014 that looked at young adults uh, ages 25 to 49 years of age. Hey, I'm still in that category. What do you know? Uh, barely. Um, young adults who uh, were obese in looking at the risk of certain things. We know obesity causes a lot of problems. We think uh, primarily of diabetes, of heart disease, of stroke. However, they were really cued in on looking at cancer risk. And most people don't realize this, but being obese is a uh, big uh, risk factor for for cancers. And in particular, there are about six different cancers that have been linked to obesity. And they're uh, multiple myeloma, colorectal cancer, that's colon cancer and rectal cancer to combined uh, uterine uh, cancers, uh, gallbladder, kidney, and pancreatic cancer. So these are all cancers that if you're obese, you have a much higher risk over your lifetime. Now, we most everybody knows that, uh, you know, this is this is something as you get older that uh, you certainly have a risk for cancer, particularly certain ones. However, these are younger individuals, 25 to 49, and they found that there was a lot more risk in these uh, six types of cancers. In fact, the the incidence of new cancers in these individuals was outpacing those who were in the older age ranges. In other words, we're, there are a lot more cancers, with the exception of colorectal, which we've really gotten good at identifying those, uh, particularly you know, if you're between the ages of 50 and 75 or 80. You know, uh, a colonoscopy is, is one thing that can save your life because they can identify uh, those precancerous polyps. Uh, or cancer in its early stages, if you have those on a regular basis, and they can remove those uh, without uh, having to wait until it 
turns into something much more serious. So we've made great strides in that. Some of these other ones, though, are a little bit harder to uh, to, to identify and deal with. So things like pancreatic cancer, kidney cancer, uh, gallbladder, they usually present a little bit later. And some of them have very, uh, you know, sort of confusing symptoms uh, at first uh, or no symptoms at all. So, but that's something else to sort of motivate us that we need to really look at this. Uh, about a third of cancers in general, if you look at the numbers, are caused by obesity or a lack of activity and uh, poor diet in general. So that's a little bit more um, evidence to suggest that, particularly in younger individuals. Uh, so we don't need to, you know, don't need to sort of blow that off. Um, uh, you know, if, if it's a, if it's a problem, so something in the news, uh, that's worthwhile, uh, love to take your calls this morning. We've got plenty of time to take those. If it's about high blood pressure, if it's about, uh, diabetes, maybe it's about what's going on right now with all these snotty noses, you know, flu season's really ramping up. It's hard to get away from flu. I was, in the pediatric ER uh, last night, uh, about six six o'clock, seven o'clock, they have been really hit hard here in Jackson at Batson Hospital with a lot of kids, not just flu, but other things that are going around right now and uh, really makes it hard. Think about all these kids coming in with flu to one area, too. Everybody gets exposed to that. So a lot of people don't like the flu vaccine. They want to, you know, sort of wait it out. I would not uh, I would not do that. I would advise against that and uh, get your flu vaccine because you do not want the flu. Uh, that's something that can definitely decrease your risk. We're looking at a record season this year. We had way too many deaths uh, last year from flu. Uh, certainly, it's something that can has the potential to cause a lot of uh, adverse reactions to things. So uh, don't want to do that. A lot of people have been asking about measles, too, in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in Washington State, where they've had uh, measles outbreaks. There is some evidence that it may be uh, sort of trending down in the Portland area as well. Uh, measles. You know, we've gotten very successful with measles since the introduction of vaccinations uh, against it. And people forget about, uh, you know, just what the symptoms are even. And uh, it's it's difficult to even train prof- uh, healthcare professionals about identifying those because you can't see it. It's much easier to identify those if you've actually seen the disease. And, uh, you know, we really just don't see that much measles in North America. Although it is still pretty prevalent worldwide, so over 100,000 people worldwide get measles. And, you know, with travel the way it is now, particularly in bigger cities, it's very easy for a person who has measles, maybe even doesn't have all of the symptoms of measles, to transmit it. It's one of the most uh, easily transmitted viruses through nasal secretions, through breathing. So if you're in the same room as somebody who has it, you've probably been exposed. And it usually takes about 10 to 14 days, so up to two weeks after you've been exposed to develop symptoms. And those usually are a high fever. Usually it can, particularly in children, it can get up around 103 or 104. They have a dry cough with it. Uh, and then they can develop a sort of a splotchy red um, rash that usually starts on the head and then travels throughout the rest of the body. And then there's something in particular on the inside of the mouth called coplic spots. And those are, um, you can see pictures of these if you Google them. Uh, but basically, it is a particular rash to measles that you can have on the inside of the mouth. It's a sort of a reddish background to it and these white spots with a blue-white center to it. 
And for most people, uh, those are the main symptoms. You can have others. Of course, you sort of feel like you have the flu and all the other things that go around. You can have bronchitis or pneumonia with it. They're the One of the most serious complications is encephalitis, uh, which is sort of like meningitis. And the scary thing about that is it can be while you have those other symptoms, or sometimes you don't, you won't have those symptoms until months after you're exposed. So it's about one in a thousand people who have measles will have that. So that's not a, a small number. And there can be long-term complications with that as well. So vac- vaccination is the uh, most common way or the, uh, to, to gain protection of it. But we you need about 86% of the population, if not all the population, vaccinated to protect everybody just because of how uh, contagious it is. So that's that's measles in a nutshell, not something that we want to uh, experience just because of all the bad stuff that used to come with it. But um, it is it is not something you want to trifle with. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy. You can reach us this morning. We've got wide open lines and you can uh, call one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 Or you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.com. Org. Speaking of an email, i got an email right here from Gladys. Gladys writes in that she has had type 2 diabetes for a while, but has recently changed her regimen and her diet, and her A1C is now 6.8. She wants to know, in the past, her physicians about a couple of years ago had said that it, her goal A1C needed to be less than 6.5, but now since it's 6.8, is that okay? What's the new target? Please help me understand this. Thanks for sending that in, Gladys. And, uh, you know, that's a, a good question about what are our targets. Now, we should say what an A1C is. <clears throat> an A1C is an average blood sugar for the last three months. So it's a great test. If you just test a blood sugar, blood sugar can go up and down every couple of minutes, actually. It's changing depending on what we eat and how our body metabolizes blood sugar. And one of the problems with diabetes is particularly type 2 diabetes is our bodies aren't able to uh, to push that sugar into tissues where it's supposed to be. It, our bodies uh, in type 2 diabetes make lots of insulin. However, they're just not able to do that. We call that insulin resistance. And in the past, uh, Gladys is right, uh, less than 6.5 or even less than 6 in some cases was considered very tight control. That's an average blood sugar somewhere between 100 and 120. Uh, a, an A1C of 7.0 would be the equivalent of about 140. So, uh, you know, that's uh, some people would say, well, isn't that too high? Well, what we know now is even if you if you try to get it less than seven, you really don't have any protective effects against some of the complications like um, heart heart disease, stroke. Uh, really less than seven, particularly if you're older, that's probably a safer level. Um, and, you know, five, 5.7, some people want to get really, really low. But that's not always a good thing because you can run the risk of having it get too low, and there's some complications with that. So talk more about your um, uh, to your uh, physician about that, but uh, that's, uh, that's something that you need to sort of work on. And, and you may have a different goal uh, depending on, you know, sort of what's going on in your life. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to uh, go to the phone lines. Uh, we've, got, we've got a couple of people who are patiently waiting, but the number to call if you'd like to reach us this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll be right back after this. 
This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and uh, you've reached... The program where you can call in with your medical questions that you might have about yourself or somebody else, a loved one, neighbor, whoever, doesn't matter what age they are. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always email us during the hour or afterwards at remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to Harry. Good morning, Harry from Pascagoula. Hey, Doc. What's up, man? Thanks for calling. Yeah, I just wanted to agree with you completely on that flu shot thing, because last year I got the flu and it nearly killed me. I mean, I, I was... It's, it's not fun, is it, Harry? No. <laughs> and this year I got the shot in November. Now, I've got the flu again, but the intensity is like a fifth of what it was last year. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I still got the... Uh, Body aches are like 70% less with this version of the flu, and I know it has to be because I got the, the, the flu shot this year. It's yeah, a it, lot less. I feel everything I felt last year, but at very lower intensities than, uh, than what I felt. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's... Also, uh, I was just going to ask you, well, what's the pain at the bottom of the lungs when you cough? The kind of cough that when you cough it hurts like your rib cage area the lower rib cage yeah the so the pain with coughing so your lungs themselves don't have a whole lot of pain receptors on the 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 lining that covers the lungs but that outside we call it the parietal pleura there's a visceral pleura which is a, a small real thin lining uh that covers the lungs and then the inside of your chest cavity has the other side of that the parietal pleura and if you've got any kind of infection going on or irritation in the lungs themselves, that can be transmitted to those tissues. We used to call these things like pleurisy. Um, but if you're coughing a lot, it could be from there or it could be inside the lungs themselves. So um, as you can imagine, you know, a coughing is a good mechanism. It helps to clear something that's lower down in the lungs, get it all the way out. We have little, uh, little hairs called cilia that help to sweep that stuff up. And we have lots of mucus production in the lungs to help do that on a day-to-day basis. Because as you can can imagine, you you breathe a lot of stuff in, a lot of bacteria, a lot of viruses, a lot of dust and other materials. Well, if you got a chronic cough, that just irritates those pain receptors. And it can be transmitted to that parietal pleura, or even it can be a sharp pain that can be some of the muscles that help with breathing. Uh, and this is really irritating when you have it. If you've been coughing a lot, you've experienced this where it's, um, you know, it's it's like pain in between the ribs and it can just, it doesn't get any better and you can cough and cough and cough. The problem is you can't rest those tissues. You have to keep breathing. You can't, you know, if your arm, if you have a uh, pulled muscle in your arm or your shoulder or your even your leg, you can rest and not use it, and it gets better. You can't do that the same way with with the uh, muscles around your lungs to help you breathe because you got to keep breathing. So that, that's a couple of different possibilities with that. But that's 
that's the main thing. Now, if it's an unbearable pain, unbearable pain, and it's not going away, and it's really, really bad, in some rare instances, you can actually have a rupture of those linings, and that's called a pneumothorax. And there are certain conditions that can have that if you've got chronic lung conditions in your coffin. But even if you've had, you know, pretty intense coughing, people with pertussis used to get this a lot. Uh, that they would cough, 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 and you can actually rupture that uh, that lining to the point where you've got air around your lungs. But NSAIDs help. That's ibuprofen or um, you know naproxen. Those kinds of things can help a lot to decrease that and uh, sort of relax those tissues. So that's that's what I, I that's what it sounds like, Harry. Okay. Uh, one other quick question, if I can. Sure. Um, my knee has started falling out of socket. <laughs> And I am able to stand up real quick and, like, grab it about the calf and wiggle my ankle and get it back in socket. Hmm. And uh, Does it give way when you do that? Does it feel like it's giving way? Um, well, it just, for some reason, it's just like slipping out of socket. Uh, if, usually uh, um, I... Uh, do uh, maintenance and uh, you know when I'm working down low or something and I'm yep. down working on baseboards or something uh, you know so my knee is in a bent position right uh, you, you, I, may, you may have injured some of the ligaments in there. You know, there are four ligaments that help hold that knee in place so that it can bend appropriately. Um, and if they get strained or even if they have a small tear or rupture, it may not be totally unstable, but in certain movements it might be. So you might need to get your physician to look at that. They can do certain tests to uh, to stretch those out and to test them out. And if it's if there's some laxity there that it's moving around, I mean, that may be with the pain, too, if it's hitting the meniscus, which that's sort of the cushion in the knee. Um, but it sounds like you've got a repetitive injury that's either injured the meniscus or some of the, the ligaments that's causing that. So there, and I don't know if you're using it, if you're on your knees a lot, certainly uh, a brace or knee pads can help so that you're sort of taking the pressure off of individual points over and over and over again. But um, probably needs to be checked out. I bet you've got a laxity in some of the ligaments. Mercy. So I, that wouldn't just, if, I, if I'm gentle with it, that's not going to fix it. It won't heal itself up. If it's, if, well, small tears, this, they, they can heal up on their own. So if you, yeah, if you're able to not bend as much all the way, you know, past 90 degrees and be a little careful with it and, and rest it a little bit, sure, it could, it could heal up. If it doesn't, then that's something I'd get checked out. Yeah. It's just my insurance is so crappy that uh, my <laughs> yep. is like, it's, it's just, uh, I, uh, my company started a new policy where you, you have to, uh, get a doctor's excuse for your first day of sick day. Yep. You know, it used to be you had to be off three days. Uh, if you took more than three of your sick days that you earned, then you got to, you had to have a doctor's excuse. Well, they changed that policy this year to every single day that you call in sick, you have to go get a doctor's excuse. Now, yeah, I want to document it. Yeah, well, I'd go to Medscape. If you go to Medscape and type in knee pain, and they're going to have things not only to like sort of see what's going on, but also some strengthening, stretching exercises. Uh, but that's a that's a good reputable site. Mayo Clinic has one too that you can look at some things that you can do to try to stabilize that knee, and that might get better, and you can avoid that appointment. What? How do you spell that again? Med, that page? Medscape. M e d s c a p e. Dot com. Uh, yep. 
Okay. Hey, Doc, thanks for your time. All right, Harry, thanks for calling. All right, let's go to Victor in Biloxi. We're uh, along the coast this morning. Good morning, Victor. How you doing this morning, Doc? Good, thanks for calling. Hey, my question is, uh, I, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes uh, two years back. and uh, The doctor put me on metaform. Uh-huh. And my AC1, A1C is down to 4.2. I went to my Ooh. foot doctor. 4.2? My foot doctor asked me, why am I still taking 2,000 milligrams of metaform a day? Should I still be taking it? Uh, one good thing about metformin is uh, it's probably it's the first line medication for for diabetes. It's actually one of the safer ones, and um, it won't get your your usually your blood sugar too low, at least symptomatically. But four point two is really low, Victor. So I, I'd call your doctor and say, "Hey, can I back off of some of this?" You probably could. Uh, maybe not all the way, but you could probably back off on the dose that you're taking of the metformin. Uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, I don't know if you were listening earlier, but, you know, less than seven is good, you know, in some cases less than six, but really there's not any evidence that if you're lower than that, particularly less than five, that's getting down pretty low. I would, I mean, that's a, I'd have to look it up on the chart, but basically that sounds like it's right around 80 or less for an average blood sugar. So, well, I saw back working out three times a week and I modified my diet and I took an, I took an inventory of my, my, of my, uh, blood sugar count at the end of the year, beginning of the year. All last year, I never went over 130. I'm not oh, that's the great. 125 to 97 range. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, you're doing the right things. I mean, you're you're what, uh, you know, if you were my patient, I would say this is our goal. If you can change what you do, what you eat, exercise, then uh, we can maybe get down on the medication. I've had some patients to come all the way off of it. Talk to your doctor about that before you do it, though. But I bet you could probably come off of some of that medication. Well, believe it or not, I just pulled into the VA in Biloxi. I'm going to talk to my doctor in about an hour. There you go. Tell him you talked to Dr. Jimmy. Okay. I All right. All right, Victor. All right. Thanks for calling. All right. The number to call, this is uh, Southern Remedy. The number to call if you'd like to be on today is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Kathy, Terry, and John. Be right back after this. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy. We're taking your calls this morning. That's right. This is the program where we answer your phone calls. We're going to go to Kathy, who's been patiently waiting from Greenville. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Oh, you're welcome. My question is, why are people that are bipolar so susceptible to gambling? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, so bipolar is, a lot of people don't know what that is. Um, so bipolar is a, uh, is a mental illness, a mental disease that basically your brain vacillates between one extreme and another. It's an oversimplification of it. It's very complex. And you can have different forms of it. So you can have what's called unipolar bipolar disease, which is you may only have depression uh, or you may have um, manic episodes where you have tons of energy, you never can slow down. There's a lot of research that has been done into 
uh, addiction behaviors in bipolar patients. So what's been noticed for a long period of time is that if you have bipolar uh, disease, you're more likely to have addictions to different things, and that can be alcohol, it can be other substance abuse, or it can be things like Kathy mentioned um, in gambling. We don't know all the specifics, but there's a, in particular, there's a theory that the impulsivity, so this is the inability to sort of rein in your impulses, uh, has a lot to do with that. So all addictions, uh, you know, in, in successfully treating those at some point in the cycle, you have to break that impulse. Like, I want to get that beer. I want to get these drugs. I want to, uh, you know, go gamble. Uh, there is something that has to do with the brain chemistry in a patient with bipolar disorder that they don't quite have that ability to do that. And now, it is a big risk factor. If you have any kind of addiction, it can complicate the treatment of bipolar, particularly if it's a substance abuse one. Uh, and that needs to be, uh, you know, questioned and uh, treated at the same time that you're treating the bipolar. So, Kathy, don't have... Smoking. Yeah, smoking too. You're right. You're right. So, um, yeah, you want to you wanna address those things. If you do have bipolar with your physician, say, hey, this is the things I'm really struggling with, and they need to be treating those at the same time. But we don't know all the things about that, but there's a lot of research like going on. Alcohol Anonymous, could they help? I mean, is sure. the same type of treatment? There's Gamblers Anonymous, too. There's actually other, uh, you know, you can go. Not here. Not, not you're right. I mean, like Vegas, there's a lot, uh, but right, uh, you're right. Mississippi. Yeah, there's a lot. We of, just have the casinos. We I, don't have the. But I, I know you know even if you're not uh, addicted to alcohol or or you know uh, that's not your addiction, uh, right. that same cycle can help. So going to an AA meeting and applying everything that they're talking about with alcohol to gambling can help. It's like the most hot. It's almost like being, what do you call it, manic or, I don't know how to explain it. I really don't. It's like yeah, a, it's it's a hard drug. to explain to other people. You're right, and it's it's something that sort of drives you. But I would, yeah. I think that's an excellent thing that you mentioned is to go into maybe Alcoholics Anonymous first and saying, hey, go to some meetings, and then you can share that. There's often okay. other people that do that. Okay, well, that's what I was wondering. I just didn't know if it's the same would fly or if I'd look stupid. No, you're not yeah. going to look stupid, Kathy. You are not going to okay. look stupid, and they will okay. open their arms to you, okay? Lithium is my lifeline, okay? Yeah, Without don't lithium. don't stop taking that. <laughs> All right. Never, I haven't stopped taking it in 25 years. Yeah. All right. All right, Kathy. All right. Thank you. Yes, yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right, let's go to Terry in Tupelo. Good morning, Terry. Oh, are you there, Terry? Terry. All right, we may come back to Terry. I hope I don't... Let's see if I can do this right. Let's go to John in Jackson. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. Thanks for calling, John. Yes, yes. Appreciate your program. You, I caught in, tuned in later, and missed part of where you were talking about this, this um, kind of like a pain between the rib cage or underneath the rib cage there, and... Would you mind repeating that? Because it seems like I've been feeling that, and I wonder what what you suggested for treatment and what what you thought it could be. Sure. Um, so there's lots of muscles in the rib cage around your lungs, and there's a lining of the lungs themselves in the interior of the rib cage. Both of those things, if you overuse them, can cause cramping. There's muscles in there, too. So just like any other muscle, you can have a muscle cramp if you have overuse of that. Uh, there's tendons in there, so you can get something called costochondritis. 
it's it's difficult to rest though. You can't quit breathing for a while or a couple of weeks. I mean, you got to do that. So um, if you can take it, if it's not going to interfere with anything else, something like Advil or Motrin, ibuprofen, naproxen, any of those would be helpful in in trying to treat that. You might want to. Uh, or in cutting off, you know, what's going on. So if it's, say, a cough that's uh, secondary to allergies, you might want to take uh, medication for that, like an antihistamine for a while to try to cut it out. But that's basically what we were talking about. There's other things on the chest wall or inside that those tissues get uh, overused or they get inflamed and uh, causes that cough reflex. And the cough reflex, again, it's coughing is perfectly normal like we need to cough people who can't cough they have tons of problems uh, so it is something that that is a symptom sometime of some other things but coughing in and of itself isn't something that you always need to suppress completely i think mine may have been related to i drive a big truck and i'm short so i pull up with my right hand oh you're probably I, right yeah and and because I, I don't notice it at all on the left side, yep. just on the right side. Yeah, and that's something that's that's important to note. It may not be in the lungs at all. It may be in the muscles around there. You know, you have big muscles that help your, your arm girdle move around, like your latissimus dorsi and your serratus anterior, your pectoralis muscles. They can be, you know, sort of if you've got an overuse where you're doing that and you're having to pull yourself up, that might be it too. Okay. Thanks, Doc. All right. Thanks for calling. Let's go to John in Mobile. Good morning, John. Uh, good morning. I'm the other John. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for calling. We got lots of Johns this morning. I appreciate I don't it. Know why. <laughs> um, I had a question about the uh, flu shot. Uh, sure. We're, I guess we're nearing the end of the flu season, and I'm wondering if it's worthwhile getting that flu shot. Not only for me, but for a neighbor of mine who is recovering in her bed about 30 feet away. Um, from being in the hospital, she was uh, she's 94 and was not able to breathe well, and uh, so she spent most of a week in the hospital. They brought her back, and then uh, over the weekend, she got worse and had to go back to the hospital. Uh. So I'm wondering, uh, and her problem was um, uh, breathing uh, fluid on on the lungs, or is it is that the peritoneal sac or something like that? Uh, it can be that, or you can also have fluid in the lungs themselves. So it's sort of, yeah, you can have both of those. I think the diagnosis her uh, daughter told me about was in the area around the lungs. And so they think they have it under control with Lasix, a different, um, yeah. you know, uh, different level of that. But is it, uh, I, I don't want to be a cause of disease. Sure. So I'm thinking I was pretty lucky this flu season that I only got the sniffles once um, and have not had the flu um, for about five years, I think it was. Yeah. Is it worth it getting the flu shot now? I, yeah, it's still not too late to get it. So the CDC sort of monitors this, and because of flu patterns worldwide and in the United States, what we know now, the flu season is much longer than it used to be. You know, used to, we used to see, you know, three, four months and different conditions with people 
much more easy to transmit things back and forth, and there's lots of different reasons why it's longer. But basically, it runs from like late September, even late August, some years, all the way through May. So there's still a lot of time in flu season. Actually, we haven't come to the end of it necessarily. It is peaking right now. So I would say yes, particularly if you have contact with her. Now, if you're just going to be waving from the window to your neighbor, that's probably okay. But if you're going to have contact with her, uh, you know, and, and helping her out from time to time, it's an excellent way to protect them. And a lot of people say, hey, I've never gotten the flu. I'm a healthy person. Why would I get it? If you've got an infant, if you've got an elderly person in your home or that you take care of, that's an excellent reason to get a flu vaccine. It may not be you that needs it, but if you got the flu and even had mild symptoms and then transmitted them to somebody else, that would be horrendous for them. So that would be my advice for you, John. Hey, thanks for all our callers today. Some great questions. Hope you got the answers that you were looking for today that help you out. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Farrell. Our call screener was Jay White. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. You can join us next Wednesday at 11 for Southern Remedy. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.